All right, welcome to Desview Pod, especially heinous. I'm Gabe. I'm Tasha. We are on season six, episode 13, Quarry. Quarry. Yeah. Opening scene, Kragen walks into the precinct. He's just showing up for work. Benson is still there from the night before. She just spent nine hours getting a confession from someone. I'm guessing it was probably coerced because <laughs> it's nine <laughs> fucking hours. In the middle of the night. The guy's just like, fine, I jaywalked. Okay, whatever. Can I go to bed? Yeah. Craig and hands are an envelope that somebody dropped off at the front desk or whatever it's called. It has a missing person flyer for a little boy named Jeffrey Ronson from the fucking 80s, 1980 to be specific. There's a photo of a baseball diamond with an X on it, written next to it is a message, quote, he is here. Now, CSU and Craig and Benson are at this baseball diamond. Back in 1980, Craig and actually worked this disappearance case with a little boy from the flyer. They thought the perp was a dude named Lucas Biggs. So he played on a baseball league and would molest boys. Was he like triple A? He wasn't he wasn't pro, he wasn't like famous. Yeah, it was big enough where he had some sort of stature and kids looked up to him and whatever. Yeah. So Jeffrey was seen talking to Biggs the day he went missing. Biggs is on death row right now in Virginia for a different crime. They never got enough on Biggs to arrest him for Jeffrey's disappearance. He is supposed to be executed next week. They walk over to the excavation site. Coroner Warner found something. A child skeleton buried face down with a baseball jersey still on it. It's got to be Jeffrey. It's very not funny, but the way they cut to the giant hole in the ground and her head popped out of it... (laughs) Yeah, that was a really, really deep. It's a really big hole. For nobody to notice the home base was fucking at a baseball field. You know what I mean? And also, did he rent an excavator? Yeah. It was like six feet deep. Yeah. I mean, when you're at like a city baseball diamond, the next day when people come to play, they're going to be like, what the fuck? It's so... They're also going to be like, is that semi-famous baseball player, Mr. Big? Right. Mr. Big, I'm the one who wants to. What's he doing driving that bobcat? I'm the one. That's one of my karaoke songs I go to all the time. Okay. I know. So Kragen thinks Biggs sent the info they needed to find Jeffrey's remains so that his execution would get pushed. If Biggs has an open investigation in New York City, they can't execute him in Virginia. But if he did send the flyer, he has someone working for him outside of the prison because Benson said the flyer was hand delivered. He could have sent it to anyone, but why her? Right. Okay, so Craig and Benson and Stabler are at Corner Warner's office. She has Jeffrey's dental records displayed and they match the remains. It's possible that Jeffrey died of a broken neck. She shows him the vertebrae that's all fucked up. Mm-hmm. Craig says that Big's other victims died of suffocation to stop the kid from screaming. Breaking Jeffrey's neck isn't his MO. But Corner Warner says it's possible Jeffrey was suffocated and the broken neck happened when Jeffrey's body was dumped. <laughs> Craig is going to call Jeffrey Ronson's parents to let them know they found him. Stabler gets a call. He's got to leave. One of his kids is in the hospital with appendicitis, so we're not going to see him throughout the whole episode till the very end. Benson wants to go to the funeral to see if the person who dropped off the flyer shows up. Because you know how those people always show up to fucking shit. Yeah. They're like, I'm going to join the search party for the guy that I killed. I'm going to stand outside this burning building with a gas can. Mm -hmm. And go, oh no, how can I help? Craig is going to call the family to get it okay that she crashes the wake. At the funeral home, Benson is giving her condolences to Jeffrey's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Ronson. Did you clock? Mrs. Ronson was such a little cutie mom. I don't remember. Uh, she was this little Polly Pocket, brown bob. She had a glowing little face. She looked like the kind of mom who would host like a, a fantastic Christmas party. 
Aww. and like hug everyone. Like, oh, we're leaving. And she wouldn't be like, bye, have a good night. Thanks for coming. She'd be like, oh my God, I forgot to give you a hug. <laughs> anyway, that's how she struck me. So Benny's talking to them and dad encourages her to go sign the guest book before the service. We cut to, to Ruben and Munch in a mobile unit watching the funeral on security cameras. So on the screen in the mobile unit, we see Benson signing the guest book while Tarubin explains that the pen for the guest book is actually a digital pen that's recording everything written in it and it transmits to a wireless receiver like James Bond. They borrowed this technology from James Bond movies. <laughs> They're going to cross-reference the names with the original case file to narrow down the pool. Deacon Bryn signs in. He was the last person to see Jeffrey alive. He had been babysitting him the night he went missing and let Jeffrey walk home alone. Mm. Avery, someone who was on the baseball team with Jeffrey, signs in as well. Avery is played by Michael Shannon. Mm -hmm. Okay, he was in Groundhog Day, Pearl Harbor, Vanilla Sky, Eight Mile, Bad Boys 2, Mud, a main cast member on Boardwalk Empire, The Shape of Water, Waco, Knives Out, Room 104, Nine Perfect Strangers. We all know him. I love him. And I find him like yes. weirdly hot. Yeah. He's really good at playing yeah. a bad guy. Yes, he do he is. Yeah. Yeah. He's like. He does have bad guy face. Yeah. He's really. He's like hot. I don't know. It's weird. And he's got a weird mouth and voice and I love it. He's like, yeah. <laughs> he <always laughs> says, yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Actually, yeah. <laughs> so Munch and Cherubin are watching him sign in and are talking about his quote-unquote involvement. A week after Jeffrey died, he claimed to remember seeing Jeffrey talking with Biggs. Mm -hmm. Avery doesn't even make it into the service, so after he signs the guest book, he just turns around to leave. Benson goes and catches up to him outside. He said he didn't want to see everyone and just wanted to say goodbye to his best friend. Mm -hmm. He pulls out this photo that he has of he and Jeffrey when they were kids and tells her Deacon Bryn had taken the photo. Avery called Deacon their guardian. He would walk them home, Etc. He asks Benson if finding Jeffrey's body will prove who killed him. Benson assures him they're looking for evidence and are re-interviewing everyone. She asks Avery to tell her about Biggs. He tells her about Biggs' baseball card collection that he had and said he didn't look like a pervert. He was cool. Benny jumps in and goes, oh, so you didn't think you'd hurt Jeffrey. Is that why you waited so long before telling that you saw them together that day? Avery says that he waited to tell because he knew everybody was blaming Deacon for Jeffrey's disappearance, and he didn't want to get blamed, too. At the funeral, Benson's interviewing Deacon. He's been in two prior episodes as different dudes, so I immediately was like, who's this guy? Why do I know him? Because he was prominent characters in two other episodes. That's what, He looked familiar. Yeah. He has appeared in SVU 18 times because eventually he becomes reoccurring character Chief Tommy McGrath. Okay. And he's been in a ton of other stuff too, but yeah. he's a eventually he's one of the heavily rotated cast members in the I think it's the last like 3 seasons. I always get him confused with that kid that was in um like the grown-up version of that kid that was in Breakfast Club. Oh, really? Do you know who I'm talking about? The look like I do. Little... He's like a smaller Dolph Lundgren looking guy. Uh Dolph Lundgren, man, that's that's very generous. The nerdy I mean, guy. like a smaller version, I mean. Anthony Michael Hall. Yeah, that's very generous. <laughs> I always get him, that that character confused with him as an adult. It's not him, right? It's not Anthony Michael Hall. Uh, no, it's not him. But they look no, similar as adults, right? I agree. They do look. They yeah. do look similar. And then also... I think we just ran a list of like all blonde guys look the same. I was, I was, I'm like, oh my God. I was just going to say, but all blonde <laughs> people look the same to me. <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. Um, he looks like Carrie Underwood to me, actually. 
Okay, Deacon recalls how he got blamed for Jeffrey's disappearance. He was supposed to watch Jeffrey that night so his parents and the Ronsons could go out, but he was 13 and wanted to hang out with his friends, so he sent Jeffrey home alone. Mm. Benson tells Deacon that what happened to Jeffrey is not his fault. He also says that the Ronsons haven't talked to Deacon or his family since 1980. But mm. he knows that Biggs's girlfriend was the Ronsons' housekeeper, so that must have been how he found out about Jeffrey. Ugh. Like, in the first place. Like, that's how he knew Jeffrey yeah. existed. Right. Benson and Craig do a little walk and talk. She says that they didn't get anything from their funeral. Everyone pointed the finger at Biggs, and no one's changed their story. Craig wants Benson to be on the first flight to Virginia to see Biggs. Benson wonders if he'll even talk to her. Craig thinks he will. Sending the flyer map thingy was kind of like an invitation. Also... He's on death row. He had like, he's probably, oh, I can come out and sit at a table across from another person and be a fucking yeah. weirdo. Yeah. So cut to the Sussex State Prison. Ugh. Biggs is actor John Savage. 234 roles since 1969. He was in fucking Deer Hunter. Do the Right Ooh. Thing. The Godfather 3, which is the worst of the Godfathers, but I still think it's worth mentioning. The Thin Red Line. Summer of Sam. Carnival. Ooh, that's where I recognized him from. Mm-hmm. Who was he in Carnival? Um, Hack. I'm guessing a bad guy. I don't know, but I literally only put the name of the character that he was in in Carnival because I thought you would ask. Oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know me so well. You're like, I knew you were going to ask about this, so I, did, yeah. I put the name. Oh, <laughs> I didn't put who he was in Deer Hunter, Do the Right Thing, like none of the other stuff. None of it. Yeah. But you're like, who's he in Carnival? Because I knew that's what you would ask. I love you. Let me do so this guy sucks. <laughs> yeah. Oh, barf, yeah. barf. He's his acting though it's was so, so amazing. It's disgusting. But, oh, it's gross. How good. So Benson's in there with him. Big says lots of cops come from all over to try and get him to confess about missing kids. He tells Benson that twelve other cops from New York City have tried to get him to admit to killing Jeffrey. Benson asks him about Vivian, his girlfriend that worked for the Ronsons. He says that's the first time he saw Jeffrey. Ugh. Ugh. He was at the house to pick up Vivian. Jeffrey was naked, running around trying to avoid the bath. Biggs remembers the way his hair smelled like Mr. Bubbles. Fucking gross. Gross. Benson asks if that's why he went to the baseball park to lure him away. Biggs says he didn't lure him away. Jeffrey wasn't his type. Gross. Again. Benson's like, yeah, okay, so you molested and killed Jeffrey, then buried him at the ballpark. Big says he never touched him. Benson asks how he knew where Jeffrey was buried and then shows him the flyer with the ballpark and the note. But he doesn't know what she's talking about. And honestly, he's on death row. He doesn't give a shit. He doesn't have any reason to lie. He's, I mean, he openly will say anything, obviously. Right. But if that turns out to it, be the case and something else gets open and he even said, he's like, I want to fucking die. Yeah. Like, I'm ready to go. Big says, why would I send those if I was going to get executed? And Benson tells him it's to stay his execution. But he's like, dude, I'm ready to die. I've made peace with my Lord. He's forgiven me my sins. And Jeffrey Ronson wasn't one of them. Back in New York, Benny and Craig and walk and talk about her trip. She pulls up in the cab, hops out, and he just happens to be getting a coffee. Ugh. Right there. He's like, you want one of these blue cups? Mm? <laughs> Stabler comes in and just fucking knocks it out of his hand. <laughs> Benson tells Cragen that she didn't get anything out of Biggs. So then she starts going over the facts of the other cases against Biggs. Jeffrey was only seven, and Biggs's other victims were older. They were 12 and up, suggesting that he preyed on pubescent boys, not little kids. Cragen mm -hmm. thinks he chose an older victim so he wouldn't get caught for the younger ones. And I was like, that doesn't really track. That's kind of not how they do it usually. But I mean, well, 
Cragen says that he thinks Biggs never got caught with younger victims, that he liked them because the younger the victims are, the less they'll talk. Is that what he said? Yeah. So I put a note in there and I was like, Biggs is a piece of shit, but I don't think it's him. I think it was Avery is what I said. That's what I was picking up, too, before he even said that, that I was like, God, Cragen's really trying to make this happen. And it's mm-hmm. weird logic. Yeah, because he was like, oh, he probably liked younger ones, too, just didn't get caught because they don't talk. And I'm like, hmm. Oh, okay, yeah. But I I just, I thought it was a stretch too, but it doesn't really matter. Okay. Munch pops out on the street to tell them Vivian, the housekeeper. He he comes out of a sewer, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) He tells them that Vivian, the housekeeper, Biggs' girlfriend at the time of Jeffrey's disappearance, has been benefiting from Biggs' pension for the last nine years. When he Mm -hmm. dies, she won't have the money coming in anymore, so keeping him alive helps her out. Mm -hmm. Maybe she knew where Jeffrey was buried and led them there to keep Biggs alive longer. Ooh... That is a viable theory. Let's go talk to her. (laughs) What? That's a viable theory. (laughs) I like that. I like that. (laughs) Benson heads over to chat with Vivian Tate outside of her place in the Bronx. Vivian says that she cashes his pension checks for him and puts some of it on his books. And Benny's like, oh, so you pocket the rest then. She says he fucking owes her. Because of her association with him, she lost her job and nobody else will hire her. So she keeps some of the money for herself. Yeah. She tells Benson that Biggs didn't kill Jeffrey. And Benson tells Vivian she knows that she's the one that sent the flyer and map to her. Vivian's like, bullshit. (laughs) Bullshit. And tries to walk into her house. Benson arrests her on the stoop for grand larceny. Vivian says she didn't steal anything. The money from the pension checks went to his bills. Like, what fucking bills? He's been in prison Mm -hmm. for nine years. Vivian says there's lawyer fees and his storage locker. Benny unzips from the face down to reveal she's really Scooby-Doo. She's like, Rorage Rocker. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. 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 Benson and Munch go to the storage locker. The music is all fucking swelly. A cop breaks the lock. Ugh. Behind a curtain is a bunch of baseball caps. Like a hundred, dude. Benson thinks they're all trophies from his victims. And it's fucking gross because they are. It's very well organized. Mm-hmm. And there are shelves lining all of the walls all the way around. And there's hats equally spaced apart Mm -hmm. they all have their own little section and there's like a wooden dining room chair in the middle a box of tissues and a bottle of lotion that's all that's in this room didn't see that yeah oh i made a note because i'm like there's no way gabe's gonna miss that and i can't believe that you did i was oh i just saw all the hats and i just kept i was like those are all victims oh my god i didn't even notice the fucking that's disgusting yeah why do I say that? Like, I, like I'm surprised. I know. You're like, wow, when I thought this guy couldn't get any grosser. It's like, no, that's the fucking mm. base level gross for yeah. him. Ugh. So Benson is back at the prison to talk to Biggs. All the caps from storage have been laid out. He's pissed. He tells her that she had no right to touch them. And then he says that his victims gave the caps to him for him to remember them by. And he, this, that's not true. And he says mm. he does. He does remember every single one. He starts going on about remembering their necks and fucking Mm-mm. bellies. No, stop. And uh, changing from boys to men right in front of his eyes. It's fucking gross. <sighs> He's like, he doesn't give a fuck. And like the Mm-mm. prisoner, I, I was just thinking about the security guy behind him who's just standing there i'd be like co yeah i mean they probably get so desensitized to how fucked up some of these guys are especially death row guys i know but like chomo shit like everybody fucking 
they hate those. I don't know, but yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously he's sitting there hating him, but yeah. also they're fucking protected because they can't be in Gen Pop. And he wouldn't anyway because mm-hmm. he's on death row. So he like sits alone in a cell all day, every day. Yeah. Ugh. So fucking Biggs has the cap owners memorized down to the locations and like whatever he was fucking doing at the time. Like, he's like, oh, I hit a double at whatever. It's fucking gross. And he's like yeah. licking his lips and being gross about it. Mm-hmm. He says that the caps were always there waiting for him in his room until he needed them. Well, Benson asked their names and Biggs says he will tell, but only if he gets to touch the hats again. Ew. Then Benson tells the CO guy to fucking take him back to his cell. As he's being let out, Benson says, hey, do you know what we do with old evidence? We burn it. And then she throws a hat at him and then Biggs begins to kind of spill. He gives details on the victim of the hat she threw. And then he says, this could be fun. Do you want to go on? And she's like, fucking God. The way he gave that was so fucking like number four on shelf number three. Like he knew exactly where they sat. What it just the detail of right this guy's trophy and perversion is is yeah. Ugh. His acting was so good. Yeah. So Biggs is uncuffed and he begins to touch the hats and he describes his victims to Benson. Each fucking hat. He's smelling the hats before he says the name of the kid, the date, and the baseball stats he made that day. It's fucking insane and gross. The mm-hmm. camera keeps doing this jump cutting to him saying the kid's name smiling fucking running his fingers over the logo and then back to benson's absolutely disgusted face Mm -hmm. so they get through all like what is like 116 hats yeah and then the last hat belongs to the team jeffrey was on but it's not jeffrey's it belonged to deacon he goes deacon brin he says the kid's name and up Mm -hmm. until this point what are we 15 minutes into the episode i thought he was a deacon like of a church but it's his first name i I thought everybody was like deacon brin and i was even thinking about it in the beginning i'm like they're calling him deacon like did he go into the church did he go into god work i was in the same of stuff in the whatever did you did you think that i was i was laughing at myself for being such an idiot after he talked to avery i realized that that was deacon's name but I thought he was like, a, I was like, I don't, why would you, why would anybody name somebody that? I think there's probably a lot of people named Deacon. Yeah, you're probably right. All right, back at the precinct, Benson's talking to Huang and Cragen. Welcome back from Broadway, Dr. Huang. <laughs> Deacon was interviewed five times after Jeffrey disappeared and didn't mention that he was assaulted by Biggs. And I'm like, yeah, duh, he was a fucking kid. I don't, they're surprised by that. Mm-hmm. Um, Cragen thinks Biggs is fucking with them, but he had no idea that 13 of the hats had already been identified and Biggs gave the correct names on all 13. This dude fucking actually does remember all of them. Wong says that Deacon probably hasn't said anything because he's been lying for 25 years. Quote, he's lied to himself and his family and his friends this whole time. He's been editing himself for 25 years. I love how the way he said that too, editing himself. Mm-hmm. He's been editing himself for 25 years. He doesn't know how to set himself free from the lie. It's who he is. Benson thinks Deacon's the one who sent the envelope to stay the execution. She thinks he knew about the murder and he can't think about Biggs dying without admitting to the murder. She wonders how they're going to get him to admit to knowing. Huang tells her that she needs to tell Deacon that they already know about what happened to him. That's the only way they're going to get him to talk. So Benson meets up with Deacon outside his house. I don't know. They're alone, but 
there's a bunch of balloons and shit outside. So I thought it was his kid's birthday party in the backyard or something. And it was weird. It's a weird time of year where your neck gets cold, but only in the middle. So Benny's wearing a skinny scarf wrapped around her neck a bunch of times. <laughs> Talking about it makes me breathe really shallow because it's, you know, that thing. Yeah. Why do people remember that? Yeah. Remember that when people wore skinny, skinny, skinny scarves? Yeah. And then she's got her shirt unbuttoned like a normal amount. Yeah. Her whole chest is out. Like her upper chest is out I and her know. neck is all wrapped up. Oh, my God. It, it's giving the girl with the ribbon around her neck. Yes. Unravel yeah. that scarf and your head is just rolling across the yard. <laughs> it's like that in the winter when they see people like wearing like these fur jackets and they're all muffs and whatever. But then they're wearing a dress and their legs are exposed. And you're like, what? Well, I have seen those fucking they look like tights, but they're mm-hmm. fleece lined leggings. Yeah, I've seen those. Yeah. OK, she's wearing a skinny scarf. Yeah. Why do these episodes take us so long? <laughs> <laughs> she shows him the picture of his old hat and asks if he recognizes it. And he gets all nostalgic and he's like, hey, that's my old team. Where'd you find that? Well, she tells him it was found in Big's storage locker and that she knows that he was molested by Biggs. Mm-hmm. There's a long pause before he starts talking. Back then, Biggs gave him tips about baseball and treated him like a grown-up. He gave him beer and let him watch dirty movies at his house. Mm-hmm. The day he was molested, Biggs told him they weren't doing anything wrong but deacon knew it was Mm -hmm. and benson goes that's why you sent me this photo and hands him the pic of where jeffrey was buried Mm -hmm. he asks her how did you know i sent it (laughs) and she's a cop she goes you just told me it works every time (laughs) deacon looks sad and admits that he should have told 25 years ago benson tells him he can tell now and reminds him that he is the victim it's time to tell the truth Mm-hmm. So Deacon went to Biggs' house the night Jeffrey disappeared. He saw him leave his apartment carrying a big bag. So Deacon followed him to the ball field and watched him dump Jeffrey's body in the hole. Yeah. Biggs saw Deacon and told him that if he told, he would kill him. Mm. Over at the station in an interview room, Benson and Novak tell Jeffrey's parents about Biggs. Novak tells them that they have a witness now, so we can get after this shit. But Mrs. Ronson asks about the length of the trial, and Novak admits it could take a year or more to convict Biggs. His parents don't want to do the trial. It's having to talk about it, hear about it, go to court over and over. Years that Biggs gets to continue living. They just want it to be over. Mm -hmm. She tries to convince them again by selling the peace of mind angle. Like, hey, you guys, this might really be good for your psyche. But Mr. Ronson jumps in. We were out having a nice dinner while that man murdered our son. Peace of mind won't be coming anytime soon. Damn, you know. And then he goes, period. She's like, Hmm. all right. They tell Benson, don't stop the execution. Just do it. Craigan comes in and pulls Benson out because they need to leave. Something's Mm -hmm. going on. He's like, grab your jacket. Novak's like, rude. Okay, bye. (laughs) Can I come? But she wouldn't want to because let's go to the train tracks. Munch, Benson, Craigan, they're on a crime scene at the train tracks. It looks like Deacon threw himself onto the tracks when a train was coming and it cut him in half. And they fucking show it. Yeah. It's crazy how randomly they'll just plop the most fucked up things on screen. I immediately thought of when the, that camera was in the toilet and they saw yeah. the that kid get attacked. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Jesus, that was fucking like graphic as shit. Yeah, yeah. And this, they show a sheet covering obviously two halves of a body, blood all over the sheets, and then zoom in on his face like, uh. But it was funny, though, because he looked just, his face just looked like a guy that was sleeping. If you got hit by a train, you're not going <laughs> to, like, he looked pretty good. Really? He was just I hanging thought... out. He was just like, and I'm like, mm, you'd be pretty. Oh, see, in lower. my memory, in my memory, his face was frozen like, oh, yeah. But maybe I was just imagining that. 
Benson thinks Deacon jumped in front of the train because he wasn't ready to deal with the truth. So you agree. You think it's your fault. (laughs) She thinks it's her fault. Cragen says he sent the note to Benson because he was ready for the truth to come out. Like, stop blaming yourself, dude. But Benson Mm -hmm. clarifies Deacon was ready to tell the truth about Jeffrey, not himself. Mm. She's twisting herself into a delicious hot salted pretzel to (laughs) fucking make this stick that it's her fault. Yeah. Munch gets a call. They're needed at the crime lab by old Terenta Ryan O'Halloran. Old what? Terenta. It means attractive in Irish. Oh. (laughs) All right. So now we're at the crime lab. O'Halloran says Corner Warner (laughs) sent everything she had of Jeffrey's at the crime scene. The jersey was acrylic, so it was almost completely intact. Also, it had some bubble gum stuck to the front of it. This whole thing pisses me off, but like whatever. Oh, this whole fucking thing. I know. Before throwing the gum in the hole, the killer did that thing kids do and what we all want to do where you smash gum between your fingers before you throw it away. So they like sm- mm-hmm. like burp, burp, and tossed it into the hole. And it was really based in science because O'Halloran was like, me nephew, me nephew does this. Yeah. And of course, they got an absolutely perfect fingerprint. Guess whose mm-hmm. it was? Fucking Deacon. He killed himself because of guilt, not shame. And then this is inappropriate kind of, but I'm like, this really is a smoking gum situation. <laughs> that is inappropriate and I like it. I, know. <laughs> I didn't think of that. Yeah. Smoking gum. Fuck. Yeah. The only time that it would be appropriate again, I'm like, totally missed it. It's totally lost on me. Cut to the precinct. Cragen and the gang review all the case details. So they think Deacon killed Jeffrey and got away with it, which he did. <laughs> Cragen doesn't think he's who sent the envelope. Benson thinks that she screwed up. She showed Deacon the flyer and map and he knew he had to lie about him so she wouldn't suspect he killed Jeffrey. But why did Deacon kill his friend? Munch thinks Jeffrey was angry at Biggs for molesting him, but projected what happened to him onto the younger version of himself, which was Jeffrey. It's an act called, quote, identity identification with the oppressor. Munch thinks that Deacon probably molested Jeffrey before killing him. Cragen says, quote, so Deacon doesn't want to be the victim anymore, so he becomes the victimizer. Corner Warner shows up just at the perfect time and says, until someone put a bullet in him. What? Deacon was shot in the heart two hours before he was hit by the train and he didn't shoot himself. There's no residue on his hands. It's possible that the same person that sent the envelope to Benson is who killed Deacon. So they need to talk to Deacon's wife to get more info. Benson is at Deacon's house. His wife, who doesn't have a name, says he wasn't home the night before. She took their kid to get pizza and play video games and then she got home just after 10. She called Deacon before the kid went to bed because he can't fall asleep without saying goodnight to his dad, but he didn't pick up. Benson asked if it was weird that he was out so late. Turns out they were having problems and she thought Deacon was having an affair and she called him out about it about six months ago and he said he needed to figure some things out and moved into his old apartment that he was subletting. He's been subletting that apartment for a very long time because they have like a fucking 10 year old or something apartment let's go there benny and munch go to his subletting apartment to look through it it's pretty bare in there um there's a locked desk that they what i was gonna go how bare is it but then i was like that's why i didn't say (laughs) you really geared up and i wasn't about to go past it with you (laughs) i know it was halfway through the gasp i was like shut the fuck up you stupid bitch (laughs) 
So there's a locked desk that they get into and it's full of hate mail. Some of it's addressed to the apartment and some of it is addressed to his house. Mm. It said shit like, you're going to pay for what you did. There was a photo of Jeffrey with truth time written on it. There was another photo of Deacon's family with a note before the perfect American family. The after version won't be as pretty. Like this wasn't clever shit. This was pre-memes. There's also a photocopy of an article reporting Biggs's execution countdown with a message written across it. He owned you then, I own you now. Deacon told Benny he had never told anyone about the abuse. So Munch thinks that Biggs probably bragged about it to whoever ended up killing Deacon. Benson goes back to prison to talk to that piece of shit Biggs. Mm -hmm. Biggs doesn't understand what he did wrong and says he didn't hurt those kids. I loved them. I've always had these feelings. I never hurt them. It never hurt me. He just told us that he was also abused as a kid. We've talked about this before, but it's one of those narratives that just sort of floats around that a person who's sexually abused is more likely to offend in the same way, which is not proven. Mm -hmm. Um, And we talked about it at length. It's just a misdirection because people that have sexual abuse oftentimes struggle with how they show love and receive love and all of that stuff because Mm -hmm. they were totally fucked with. But Mm -hmm. this is really simplified into the abused become the abuser. And that's just the standard, which no. Mm -hmm. And we talked about it before, how people wouldn't come forward to say that they were abused because they didn't want anybody else to think that they had Mm -hmm. those same feelings and all that other shit. So like, that's something that's got to get the fuck out of here. Biggs tells her that his dad left when he was a baby. And when he was nine, a man moved across the street. He was the only one I could talk to. He says that touching Biggs was how he showed that he cared for and loved him. Benson tells Biggs that she's sorry about his abuse. And up until this moment, he felt like it was okay. But then, I don't know, it it opened something up and he just breaks down crying and says he never meant to hurt those boys. Benson tells him that Deacon is dead and the killer knows what Biggs did to Deacon. She wants to know who knew about what happened to Deacon. Biggs says that it was another little boy that used to follow Deacon and Jeffrey around and he could see in Deacon. He looked at that boy the way Biggs looked at boys. Mm. His name was Avery. Oh, shit. Jeffrey's childhood best friend. All right, boom. SWAT and SVU break in the door to Avery's house, but he's not there. Benson finds a room with the walls covered in photos, news clippings, maps, all dedicated to Deacon. Charlie Day is in there. Uh, (laughs) With a cup of coffee and a cigarette. There's a section on the back of the door dedicated to Benson as well. Mm. Munch finds Avery's diaries from when he was younger. He wrote about Deacon killing Jeffrey and how he wished he was like the Hulk and could have stopped him. Yeah. Like, he's been obsessing about this for years. So cut to the precinct. Benson, Munch, and Craig and go over the info in the diaries. So this is also where we find out that Deacon was abusing boys as well. Yeah. He t- he talks about wanting to be a superhero so he could have killed Deacon. And that could have helped Jeffrey and himself. The diaries say that Jeffrey and Avery were at Deacon's house. Deacon made them drink till they passed out and then Deacon raped Avery. Jeffrey fought back and Deacon broke his neck. Deacon made Avery help him dump the body and told him that he was going to go to jail too because he was there. Oh. Avery wrote in his diaries until he was about 14 and they were full of things about Deacon, how he wished Deacon was dead and how he hated Deacon, etc. There's no mention that Deacon had raped him again. It sounds like he avoided Deacon to the point of even considering unaliving himself. So far, there's no activity on Avery's 
credit cards since Deacon was murdered, but there is bank activity that lists large checks being written to a woman named Kimber Falk, who lives in Manhattan. He was paying her 1K a month in the last year. He was paying her off for something, but what? Benny and Munch are at Kimber Falk's house. Kimber is the mother of Avery's son, Theo. Oh, he supported her ever since she found out she was pregnant, but that was also when he left. He didn't want kids, but he still sent money. Munch says, quote, nice guy. Kimber gets fucking pissed and says he is the nicest guy she's ever known. They were together for two years, and the only thing they fought about was having kids. She says somebody really messed him up when he was a kid. Munch asks when's the last time she spoke to him, and she says they don't talk. He just sends money. Munch asks her about the money she withdrew from her account today, $400. And she's like, oh, my God, it's for groceries. And then Munch looks in the fridge and there's only formula, so he doesn't believe her. Detective! Detectiving! Benson looks through Kimber's phone. Oh my god, her phone shows four calls from Avery over the past two days. She says she doesn't know what that's about. Bullshit! Benson tells Kimber to tell them where he is or else she will be arrested for aiding a fugitive. I can't believe I got through that with you laughing. Cut to Kimber being walked out of the building in cuffs. Benson carries the baby and tells her that social services will be taking him. Avery walks up and tells them that Kimber has nothing to do with this and to leave her alone. Benny and the other cops all have their fucking weapons drawn and he's arrested and Kimber's like, don't hurt him. I completely thought that one of the like cops was going to accidentally shoot him. I completely thought, aren't there a bunch of cop cars outside? Or maybe I guess it was just the detectives out there. He's like just walking down the street. <laughs> oh, <Uh-oh. laughs> At the precinct, Benson walks into the interview room. Avery immediately stands up and says he killed Deacon. Benson tells him she knows that he was raped by Deacon when he was seven and tells him about the diaries they found in his apartment. She asks him why he sent her the envelope. He says that he thought she'd figure it out. He wanted them to arrest Deacon without involving him, but they started to focus on Biggs instead and he didn't want Deacon to get away with it, so he shot him. And then Benson wants to know why he specifically came to her with the info. Avery said he's read about her in the papers, how she doesn't sleep when she's on a case and how her whole life is about helping kids. Benson says, well, yeah, same with my partner and same with any of my other colleagues. She tells him that she knows he singled her out and stalked her for weeks. Avery said that there was just something about her. He knew she would understand. You and me are so alike. She's like, uh, no, we're not. You killed somebody. And he says, yeah, so have you. Benson tells him that she didn't have a choice. And Avery says, mm. I didn't either. He had to stop him from hurting other kids. And Benson says, no, dude, you did that as payback for 25 years ago. Avery says, no, he went to Deacon's house to confront him. Deacon apologized to him, but Avery knew he was still hurting children. When Avery was at the apartment, Deacon was watching a tape of himself with a little boy. Mm. Fucking, ugh, from behind the glass. And I'm not doing this one because of the situation. I knew you wouldn't. I'm not going to be like, okay, I love you so much. Cragen tells Munch to have CSU meet him at Deacon's to look for the tape. Cragen asks Novak to arraign Avery tonight, and Novak wants to know why he cares and calls Avery a murderer. Cragen points out that Avery is also a victim. Novak says if they hurry and use the lights and sirens, they might make it in time before the offices close. At the arraignment, Judge Petrovsky is overseeing it and asks how Avery pleads. His lawyer says not guilty, but Avery adds that he is guilty because he did it. Petrovsky tells him to confer with his counsel before speaking. She's like, what are you doing, dude? This isn't how this works. Mm -hmm. But he goes, I know what I'm doing. I want to plead guilty. Meanwhile, Benny and Munch check for the tape with CSU at Deacon's apartment. So this is going to be one of those back and forth deals. They turn on the TV and there's video of Deacon with a little boy in that very fucking room. So 
they're like, okay, well, there's a camera in here, the angle of this, blah, 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 blah. They find the camera in the air vent. It's connected to a motion detector and records when the sensor is set off. So they watch the most recent recording. Mm. It's Avery with Deacon at gunpoint. Deacon tells Avery he loves him and he never meant to hurt him. And Avery fucking gun in Deacon's face demands to know why Deacon raped him. So... Like I said, it's cutting back and forth from the video of the confrontation to Avery telling the judge what happened. Mm -hmm. Deacon told him he didn't mean to hurt him, but he was all fucked up from what Biggs did to him. He wanted someone to hurt like he did and knew Avery wouldn't tell because he didn't have other friends. The only difference between what Avery is saying to the judge and what's on the tape is that on the tape, Deacon tells Avery that he hasn't molested anyone else. But Avery tells the judge Deacon told him he molested possibly hundreds of kids. Mm. On the tape, Avery puts the gun to Deacon's head. Deacon tells him that he can't hurt anyone because that's not who he is. He didn't have it in him. In court, Avery admits to making Deacon drive to the tracks and shooting him. But on the tape, you see Avery leave and toss the gun on the couch. Then Deacon gets a call and says, don't move. I'll be right there. Yep. Avery's saying that he's guilty for killing Biggs, but he didn't kill Biggs. He left and left his weapon. Mm -hmm. and, and he got the phone call. Yeah, and the wife so, said that he didn't answer. Exactly. Remember? Oh so Deacon gets this phone call. Two delusional chicks <laughs> saying exactly <laughs> There it is. <laughs> so Deacon gets this call and he's like, don't move. I'll be right there. He grabs the gun from the couch that Avery left there and leaves. The only call he got that night was from his wife. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We need to talk to this bitch. Julia... Because now she has a name. Her name's Julia. Julia, Deacon's wife, is brought in. She acts like she doesn't know why she's there, saying that she thought they'd already caught Deacon's killer. Benson tells her that Avery only confessed because he felt guilty for not telling on Deacon when he had the chance for keeping secrets over the years. Benson also tells her about the tapes of the molestations, dozens of victims. Julia said she had no idea. But Benson calls her out, telling her that, mm, yeah, you did. She puts a tape down. It was of Deacon molesting their son. Oh, my God. Julia's crying now. She says she thought there was something wrong with her because Deacon wouldn't touch her. When she found out that Biggs had molested Deacon, quote, suddenly it made sense. And I'm like, ugh, this narrative. I know. She asked Zeke that night at the pizza place if Deacon had ever touched him. He cried and said that he had, but he had promised not to tell. When she called Deacon that night, she had told him she was going to the police, but he told her to wait because he was going to come over. He brought the gun, threatened to kill her. Zeke woke up and cried. Deacon got distracted, so she got the gun and threatened to shoot him. Deacon told her he would move away and not bother them anymore, and he walked out. But she followed him to his car, thinking about what he did to Zeke and couldn't help herself. She made him drive to the tracks where she killed him. Cut to the jail. Avery tells Benson that Julia doesn't deserve to go to jail because he should have killed Deacon when he had the chance. Mm. So he's blaming himself. Avery thinks he should have ended it since he started it. Misplaced. Misplaced blame. Internalizing. Yeah. And then Benson says, after all these years, why now? Avery tells Benson that he got scared when Kimber got pregnant. He was scared that he would hurt his son. That what if he had a switch in him that would get flipped, like in Deacon, and he would start hurting kids. Which I know is a thing that like people who have been molested are afraid of. They're afraid of it because of the fucking in narrative. Himself, because of this narrative. This guy wasn't yeah. going to be a dad yeah. to his kid out of fear, not because he didn't want him. Which is, uh, it's just the ripple, yeah. ripple effect of all of it is fucked up. 
Benson tells him that he's not a monster. He didn't shoot Deacon. Avery loved his son so much that he was willing to stay away from him to protect him. She tells him that he didn't have to stay away. And then Kimber comes around the corner with Theo and Deacon Mm. hugs his son. Cut to the precinct. Benson is getting ready to leave. Stabler's there. He asks if she heard about Biggs. And she's like, yeah, he was executed and declared dead with no last words. Also, Stabler's son is better and he's on the mend from his surgery. (laughs) Benson asks Stabler if he and Kathleen ever worried about what their kids would be like. And he says, yeah, all the time. I still do. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, at least you know what you're working with. Half my genes are drunk and the other half are violent and cruel. And Stabler says, and look how great you turned out. It's not all about genes, Liv. All you can do is love your kids. Benson gets teary eyed and tells him good night fucking toyota toyota this is a really good episode it's so fucked it's super fucked so this episode pulled from a few different things one being the adam walsh kidnapping case we already did that season three so i kept digging deeper and i was really stuck on the confrontation between former victim and abuser some of the scenes were so it's it's insane that the story i'm going to tell you happened after this episode Okay, the original stuff happened years prior, but this is life imitating art. Okay, it's Mm -hmm. insane how parallel this is, but this is not what influenced the episode because this happened after the episode. Mm. Clark Fredericks grew up in Stillwater, New Jersey. He was raised in your classic nuclear family by his parents with siblings, Jay and Holly. They had vacations every summer. The boys were in Boy Scouts. Their community had a crazy low crime rate. It still does. It's much, much lower than the national average. Mm. It was a rural lakefront community. And this was the early 70s. So young kids were running around on their own constantly. As soon as Clark could ride a bike, he'd be down by the lake with all the other neighborhood kids all day, every day. There was this one area that had a dam in the water and right by there, there was a park, basketball court, a ball diamond, just tons of shit for kids. Everybody knew everybody. You get it. Like, yeah, kids leave their house. The fucking streetlights come on and they go home. Yeah, that's Spooner. Right. The Fredericks were super close with the lieutenant of the local sheriff's department, Dennis Pegg. Pegg was active in all aspects of the community, including council board member positions, scoutmaster of the Boy Scouts. He did this thing on the Appalachian Trail. It was called like Trail Angels or something where they leave water and food for hikers and stuff. He'd have weekly Sunday dinners with the Fredericks. He was a close family friend. Okay, hate him. Yeah, we do. He even stayed with them when he was healing from an injury for a period of time. So they were very close. When Clark was seven, he had open heart surgery to repair a growing hole in his heart that he'd had since birth. It was a life and death kind of surgery. Mm -hmm. And he came out of it with this huge raised scar down his chest. A few months after his surgery, the Frederick family was hanging out back at their house on a summer day. Clark ran inside to watch some TV when he heard Peg at the door. So Clark lets him in and he's like, oh, everybody's out back. And Peg asked him to sit down on the couch with him for a bit before they go outside. He told Clark he'd give him a quarter to see his surgery scar. And that was NBD to Clark since that was kind of his shtick. His parents from a place of being proud of his bravery and shit like this was a really intense surgery and he was a little kid they would have him do that all the time with their friends not realizing what it could mean they'd be like clark show him your scar man mm-hmm. you know and people would give him a quarter and i mean a little bit i i could see them not getting it you know what mm-hmm. i mean we're way more aware of that shit now so he's sitting there alone with him clark's like all right he shows him then peg said he'd give him a dollar if he could touch his scar and Clark was like, all right, I guess. I mean, whatever. It wasn't in a weird place or anything. But he, I'm going to skip the descriptions of the encounters just yeah. because I don't yeah. think it's, I just don't like saying it. And yeah. it's all pretty implied. I watched a super long interview with Clark Fredericks. Do you ever watch, it's called Soft White Underbelly? No. Oh, wait. This guy will wait. talk to, you know, 
addicts. Um, oh, yeah. And interview people and whatever. And he's always really respectful. I have seen a couple of those. Okay. I, I get so sucked in. But Clark's got one that's like an hour and a half long. I watched the whole thing and he goes into really graphic detail about stuff. Okay. So he lets him touch his scar. He kind of is a little too lingery, whatever. After that, Peg said he was going to go out and hang out with the family out back, but told Clark, hey, bud, this is our secret. We can't be buds if we can't keep secrets together, right? Ugh. And Clark really looked up to Dennis Pegg, so he was happy to oblige, and it didn't seem like a big deal. Obviously, the grooming started in gaining Clark's trust long before this, but mm -hmm. this was the first, looking at it from the outside, this was the first clear push of boundaries, right? Yeah. So down at the dam where all the kids would play, Dennis Pegg would be there a lot. He'd spend hours teaching kids to fish and bait hooks, shit like that. By the time Clark was nine, he'd be down there hanging with Pegg in his truck, splitting a six pack of beer. Knowing Pegg's intentions, it's really gross and scary to hear the full detailed story from Clark. The grooming tactics were so thought out and gradual. Putting it all together, you can see it happening. Mm -hmm. So they're hanging out in his truck. They're drinking beer. Why would he tell anybody? He's going to mm -hmm. get in trouble. He's nine. He doesn't realize that this is not okay for an adult to be doing this he just keeps crossing boundaries little bits at a time so he was showing clark polaroids of genitals making excuses for him to go up to his house with him little things that clark looks back on and goes oh jesus christ they started having regular wrestling matches at his place still all of this is a secret one day up at peg's house he gave clark a full glass of blackberry brandy to drink with his beer he's like chug it dude you know, like oh, doing this God. whole buddy thing. He then told them they were going to play a different game. As it went, it became the first time Peg took it to full sexual contact, molesting Clark. Clark okay. was 11. He was with a man that he admired and trusted. He was drunk, naked, and just froze when he realized what was happening to him. Yeah. So after that, Clark was kind of confused and avoided Peg for a while. It just didn't really make sense. He didn't fully realize what it was, but he knew that he felt uncomfortable. Yeah. Then when Clark was 12, Peg had created some story that he needed Clark's help back up at his house. They ended up back up at the house where he gave Clark a glass of blackberry brandy, then a beer. Then he insisted that he take down another glass of blackberry brandy eventually after ending up in Peg's bedroom. I mean, this kid, he's 12. He's drunk. Dennis raped him. Clark screamed and cried through the entire ordeal. And while he did, Peg whispered in his ear one more minute until he was done. Oh, my God. There's one piece here. I'm going to, I mean, trigger warning for all of it, obviously. But I know, like, where our listeners and you are sensitive. I'm, me too, but I already read all this shit. This is a trigger warning for animal abuse. So no. fast forward 30 seconds or so if you want to skip it. After the rape, Peg sat Clark at his kitchen table. Peg's coonhound had been howling in response to Clark's screams. Like the entire time it was happening, the dog was freaking out. Peg brought his dog in by the collar, sat him in front of Clark and started punching the dog until it laid on the floor, not moving. He stopped after the dog was down. Clark didn't know if he was dead, if he was unconscious. He didn't know. He told Clark that's what would happen to him if he ever told. Jesus. Clark felt responsible for the dog because if he wouldn't have screamed, the dog wouldn't have been barking. And he thought that's why he did that to the dog uh, was to make him stop barking. Clark had long thought that Peg was untouchable being who he was in the community. He was a fucking lieutenant at the sheriff's department. He uh, worked at the jail as a corrections officer. He also just had a really good reputation. So that day he decided he was never going to tell anybody. About a year after the rape, Clark's dad sat him down 
and told him there were rumors about Peg. Now, Clark had spent the last year already getting in trouble. He was, you know, smoking weed and fucking riding dirt bikes with older kids and stuff because he was trying to avoid where he had been prior. He didn't want to run into Peg. Mm -hmm. And his dad was like, what the fuck are you doing? And he got in trouble. You know, at the time, it's like he wouldn't have known. He's like, I wish my dad would have just been like, hey, what's up? Like, why are you acting like this? Mm -hmm. But even when his dad did sit him down and gave him that opportunity, he didn't take it. And again, he's a child. He's scared. Who just had all of this awful stuff happen. So in all these interviews that I watched with him, he'll always say, you know, that was my biggest regret was not telling my dad. Like when he would ask me, it's that was my biggest regret. And it's like, dude, you were you were a child, man. Mm -hmm. So about a year after the rape, Clark's dad sat him down and told him there were rumors about Peg. So Peg worked at the local jail and the rumors were that he was molesting inmates. He'd also been mentoring them after release, and there were rumors that he was molesting them at his house. Inmates? Like there were children? Like juvie? No, no. Like adult inmates. Oh. You know, they would get released, and he's like, hey, man, I'll give you a place to stay until you like get on your feet. No, they were, they were adults. Because it wasn't about... Yeah. No, I was just confused. Just position of power, yeah. you know? So Clark's dad told him this, and because of how much time Clark had spent with Peg, his dad asked, has Dennis Peg ever touched you? And Clark said no. A year later, his dad came home again. This time, he had run into a mother of a classmate of Clark's who had been in Boy Scouts. He'd run into her at a Dunkin' Donuts and they were sitting there chatting over coffee. She had told him about how Peg had raped her son. And he went home and asked Clark again. But this time he said, before you answer, I want you to know you won't have to go to the police or testify in court because I'll go take care of Dennis Peg myself. And Clark still said no. Mm. So he's growing up, he goes into high school, he's drinking, he's partying, he's numbing himself, faking this outgoing fun guy persona, just trying to survive. Mm. So back when Clark had been in the grooming process and when stuff was happening to him, Peg had told him that he had done sexual things with Clark's friend Jeff and had described it in great detail. I'm assuming he was telling him this to normalize it in a way. Yeah. You know? Like, oh, no big deal. I do this with a bunch of kids. It's fine. Like that kind of shit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Jeff lived across the street from the Fredericks and he was like family to Mm. Clark. Like Clark and Jeff were super close. When Clark was a junior in high school, Jeff's sister ran to their door begging Clark to go back to their house with her. She was covered in Jeff's blood. Jeff had ended his life and Clark knew why. Mm. Still, Clark kept it buried. He graduated, went to college. He had a long-term girlfriend, but when she asked about a future marriage, a family, Clark said he wasn't willing to do that. So she ended the relationship after six years and Clark was heartbroken. Mm. He and his brother were then working together, running like an auto tire shop. Mm. This whole time, Clark's holding himself together with drugs and alcohol. He's running in crazy circles, biker gangs and shit, doing tons of drugs, drinking a lot, functioning in this, like he's owning a business with his brother, you know, but he's also constantly followed by self-loathing, shame, intimacy issues, haunted memories. He struggled terribly with bouts of depression and got deeper and deeper into drug addiction, alcohol addiction, gambling, sex, prescription opioids, pretty much anything that you could develop an issue with, he did if it presented itself. Mm -hmm. Then one day in the spring of 2011, Clark is in his 40s at this point. He's at a local deli in Stillwater getting coffee when Dennis Pegg walks in. He had seen him randomly around town, you know, over the years. At this point, he hadn't seen him in like 10 years. Right behind Pegg walks this little boy who looked the same age Clark did when he was raped. Mm -hmm. Clark heard that little boy call Pegg the same nickname that Pegg had Clark call him all those years ago. That triggered something in Clark. Everything that he had 
suppressed started coming up. He felt all the rage and pain he'd shoved down for decades. And all of this is just ripping through him. As Peg walks in, sees Clark and is like, hey, what's up? Like they're old friends. He starts walking over to him, probably to hug him or whatever. And Clark shoved past him and beelined for his truck to get out of there. Yeah. And just is freaking out the whole way home. Within two months, he walked out of the business with his brother. He was a total mess, just experiencing all the rage and hate and violent thoughts bubbling out of him. He upped his coke intake. He's got an opioid addiction now, which led him to heroin. And his whole thing was, I said I would never do heroin. But when you're like taught at such a young age that your boundaries don't exist, there's no such thing, you know? Yeah. On the morning of June 12th, Clark turned on the TV to watch the news. It was the start of Jerry Sandusky's trial, the Penn State assistant coach, child mentor, rapist. Oh, yeah. Clark had been following the story and it just added to what was already building in him. Yeah. So he's like, I got to get out of my fucking house. So he goes out. He's drinking. He's doing drugs. He's doing all his normal shit. And he was super sleep deprived from this coke bender that he was just on. At some point in the day, he ran into this guy who he'd been to court with over a business deal that fell apart. and They kind of got into it. So when he got home, he was all heated and shit about this dude. Just it was like a motorcycle sale that went shitty. Yeah. And his friend Bob Reynolds was stopping over. So Bob Reynolds gets there and they're sitting down chatting over a bottle of wine. Clark's venting about this dude he ran into. And while he's going off, you know, just like friends do, you know, he's going off and his buddy says what a lot of friends would say, listening to their pal tell a story where he's pissed off and talking shit. His buddy goes, man, that guy's got to be number one on your hit list. And without thinking, Clark just said it. He goes, actually, he's number two. That piece of shit who raped me as a kid is number one. Damn. Bob's like, what? Clark unloads for the first time ever in his life. That was the first time he ever told anyone what had happened to him. So 15 minutes later, it's 930 at night. He and Bob are in the car driving to Peg's house because Clark's like, I'm going to fucking confront this guy. And Bob's just hyping him. He's like, fuck, yeah, let's go get him. Let's go. Yeah. They get to the house. Clark storms through Peg's front door. He had a um, the main door was open, but the screen door was closed. So it was like yeah. nothing just walking in. So he storms through the front door and he's got a knife in his hand. He wasn't necessarily intending on using it, but Peg was a big gun guy. So Clark thought he should be prepared in case it went south. He's like, this guy's a gun fanatic. You know, I'm already taking a risk going. Clark storms in. Peg looks up at Clark from his living room chair and just goes, hey, how are you? Clark just fucking charges him and he starts stabbing Peg in the chest. <gasps> they fought for a couple minutes until eventually Peg's on the ground. Clark knelt over him, looked him in the eye, the 68-year-old man, and said, it's not so fun raping little boys now, is it? And slit his throat. <sighs> Clark walked through the blood to the bedroom where he had been raped 30 years prior and spit mm. on the bed before he and Reynolds left the house. Damn. He was arrested the very next day on charges of first-degree murder. Mm -hmm. As he sat in the holding cell, the police lieutenant came in. And this is, I mean, it just gets wilder, dude. The police lieutenant comes in and told Clark he wanted to apologize to him. Clark had just murdered someone. He had known about Peg for years, but had no victims willing to talk, no evidence. He didn't have anything that would stick that he could arrest him with. Because mm -hmm. at that point, nobody in the community knew. I'm reading all these articles from the community about like this local man. These are all of his awesome stats. This other local man fucking murdered him and he is also a good dude like what the fuck's going on mm -hmm. but this lieutenant's like i know exactly what's going on and so clark's like cool well i ended it and now i'm gonna pay with the rest of my life so he was at a point in his life that he just wanted to die anyway he was 
done. Right before Clark was to be taken into an interrogation room to be questioned by detectives and answer to the prosecuting attorney, the lieutenant came back in the holding cell and he goes, you're going to go in there and act your Fifth Amendment right, request a lawyer and don't say another single word. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Mm -hmm. And Clark's like, yeah. I, I guess. Clark talked to him later and the lieutenant said he could see that Clark was in full fuck it mode and this cop didn't want that for him. He knew that there was a possibility that Clark wasn't going to be in prison for the rest of his life. So mm -hmm. he's like, keep your fucking mouth shut and wait for a lawyer. So they bring him in there. He does exactly that. Doesn't say shit. They're like, all right, great. We're we're holding you. I mean, there's no disputing that he killed him. I mean, they found his shoe prints the next morning mm -hmm. because he had walked through the blood, literally spit on the bed. I mean, he yeah. wasn't trying to hide anything. So Clark was put in a suicide cell for four weeks, which was a good call. He was ready mm -hmm. to be out of here. And he was being held in the same jail that Dennis Pegg had worked in his entire career. So Clark's mm -hmm. super worried that he's going to get it bad from these other guards. You know, this whole blue fucking brotherhood shit. Yeah. Three days into his suicide cell isolation, a guard that he knew came in and told him what was happening in the community. He's like, dude, you are not correct. People had started a free Clark campaign, free Clark bumper stickers, signs all over town. People in the community knew about Dennis Pegg. There just wasn't any evidence that could make it anything legal stick. So everybody's like, fuck yeah, Clark did what everybody's wanted to do for all these years. Mm -hmm. And nobody even fully knew his story yet. They didn't do the ribbons that police do when another cop gets mm -hmm. killed. They didn't do the ribbons. They were ordered not to put the flag at half mass. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Like that's how disgusting this guy was. And people... New. So he's just in jail. He's waiting on this shit. He sits in the county jail for th over three years and he gets offered a deal because victim after victim had come forward after Clark's arrest. Mm. Clark even found out that his brother Jay had been abused by Peg as well as a child. <sighs> You're right. So the like, prosecution off. What? I was talking to Tasha yesterday and I didn't say I was like, oh, my God, this episode was crazy. And she's like, wait, you hear the chaser. It's like a fucking it's like out of a movie. And you're right. Mm -hmm. This is yeah. like fucking mm -hmm. out of some kind of like documentary, true life doc. It's fucking crazy. They did do a documentary. I didn't I didn't watch it because I think it's like three parts. I didn't look it up. But his interview was soft white underbelly. And then all of the local articles. I like to read stuff from right away mm -hmm. to see the misconceptions when this stuff comes out. I linked everything. So it's totally worth watching his interview and the statement he gives in court and all this stuff. So prosecution offered him a plea of passion, provocation, manslaughter in the second degree, which carried a five to 10 year sentence. He originally was charged with first degree murder. OK, OK. He's like, all right, I'll take it. He pled guilty. The day he pled guilty, he gave a detailed statement about what had happened to him as a kid and what led up to the night of June 12th, 2012. As he left that courtroom, the entire gallery applauded him. Wow. On the day of sentencing, Clark's attorney told him, prepare for the 10 years. It's a murder. The judge is going to have to go on the high end of what you're facing. They can't do less than that. Like you're lucking out with 10 years. On record, in court, Superior Court Judge Thomas Critchley gave Clark five years, the absolute minimum, wow. and apologized to him for having to send him to prison at all. He said, quote, I don't feel like I'm sentencing someone who was committed to a criminal lifestyle. What happened to him as a child made him snap. It is clear that the young Mr. Fredericks was exploited, abused, and damaged by someone who wormed his way into a position of authority. Clark spent nine more months locked up. He had been given time served for the oh yeah, I was gonna, yeah. for the time that he had awaited trial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in prison, he'd already been reading everything on meditation, self-help, religious stuff, all this stuff. He started therapy in prison. He joined a therapy group for childhood trauma. When Clark 
was released on December 30th, 2016. He became a child abuse advocate. He started meeting with senators to change statute of limitation laws in New Jersey. He became a motivational speaker. He wrote a book and has been sober since June 13th, 2012, the day that he was arrested. Oh, wow. And then this was just a little, I don't... At the end of his interview, he makes a note of this. And I searched and searched to see if there had been any updates or it had changed. And I'm not sure. But 30 years after that girlfriend broke up with him because he couldn't commit, he reached out to her to apologize and explain why. Because he was finally able to talk about it. They Mm -hmm. met for coffee two weeks later and have been together ever since. (gasps) Do they have kids or anything? No. And I don't know if they're still together. Like I was like, I want to find out if they're fucking, did they get married? Did they whatever? His Instagram is all motivational stuff. Yeah. And his interviews are all focused around like what he's doing. Yeah. If they are still in a relationship, I'm not sure. But it was really just like the the happy ending of this like crazy story. That's what made it like a, I mean, that that's just another part that makes it like a movie sort of thing where it's like, I couldn't commit to this girl. And then 30 years later, I'm like, let's get coffee. And they fell madly in love again. Oh, my God. Yeah. What a crazy story. I can't believe I haven't heard of that. How have we, How has nobody ever heard of that? It was nuts, dude. So when I was looking for Chaser stuff, it was not the top thing. And I think I found it under... The fact that everybody was like... It was fucking like, cool runnings in the courtroom, dude. Yeah. Bananas. Bananas. This guy and how, what he did with his life and everything and... Ugh. Crazy. Next week... We have season six, episode 14, Game. So a sex worker is run over and beaten to death. And some cops think it's because of her line of work, of course. And, you know, they're always like, she asked for it because she was doing it. Others think it's related to a video game. And I'm guessing this is about the time that like Grand Theft Auto came out. Oh, 100%. Please rate and review us. Email us at svpod at gmail.com. You can send shit if you want. P.O. Box 176, DeForest, Wisconsin, 53532. Follow us on all social media, Instagram, TikTok, whatever, at svupod. Get pod merch and more at svupod.com. We also have a Public. You can find it through there. Join the Facebook group, svupod elite squad. We have a Facebook group chat called walk and talk join that hashtag little bit loud to find your indie pods and if you are an indie pod hashtag your shit so everybody can find you and yeah. join the patreon we got so much fucking extra content it's disgusting way more stuff on patreon sometimes we take little breaks here and there if you've heard stuff that we've dropped or stuff that we have put out on the regular feed from patreon yeah, don't please <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Please know that that's Patreon light. That's like the tip of the like iceberg. We're like, yeah, should we? Yeah, it's very much. Call or text us and leave us your questions, stories, and comments. If you want some shitty advice, call or text us at 1-920-345-7005. 1-920-345-7005. Also, I forgot to tell you, last night I ran into this girl and she was like, oh, I've been listening to your podcast like a bunch. You guys have gotten so good. She said that she just loved like hearing our rants and stuff because she's like, you don't, she's like, you don't often get to hear from podcast people that are actually best friends and like love each other and love their company. And she's like, you can just Aww. tell. She's like, she's like, I feel like I'm eavesdropping and like not even, but like not in a creepy way. That's so good because I've been faking this for years. <laughs> I hate you. Yeah. I hate you. <laughs> All right. And if you um, ever thought that for a moment, I don't know what I would do with myself. I don't know how I would survive it. If that I hated you or that that you were faking it. That I didn't that that if if you gave that life at all in your mind, like I feel safe saying that I hate you because oh, it's yeah, so it's far from so not, yeah. I'm like, yeah. oh fucking slit your throat. Because <laughs> it's like not even yeah. Love you, bye. Love you, bye. 
like toward the end. I'm the one who wants to be with you. I'm the one. <laughs> Deep inside, I hope you feel it, feel it too. Waited on the line, uh, wait on the line. <laughs> We're awful. Okay. <laughs> it was really bad. I was really going to come in hard and I was like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> O'Halloran? I'm like really pronouncing that. Oh, and I can't. Oh. O'Halloran. Just say it really. Just just give in to it. O'Halloran. That's better. I there can't do go. it any other way. O'Halloran says Corner <laughs> Warner sent everything she had of. We do. Okay, keep going. Sorry. We do. We, we do. do. <laughs> <laughs> that was Ooh, so ba, 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 ba. <laughs> I sh We should get. Tattoos of the oh we already talked about that yeah the stonecutter tattoos on our butts yeah yeah I would to our elite squad patrons Nikki M Marissa M Rebecca D LKH Trisha S Emily T Katerina G Mary D Joshua H Lem Sonia W Eliza W Nikki B Kaylin B Melanie G Andrew, Andrew Miranda B Lauren T Katie A Kate H Vanessa Lex Shelby Dubs, Mallory G, Bonita R, Marin, Marin, Ursula, Catherine M, Kate P, Jessica S, Danielle W, Jenna M, Tammy J, Burp, Lucy M, Sam D, Nisha G, MacTac, Meg M, Casey, Abby W, Alexis J, Caitlin S, Christina D, Camille Z, Maggie D, San, Jessica P, Zan and J, Madison H, Emily. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Did I do that one yet? <laughs> I don't think so. Oh. Victoria, Scout G, Melissa M, Desiree R, Lexi Y, Drew B, Monica K, Katie S, Brenna T, Andrea M, Tosh, Jenna, Al H, Andrea H, Nikki R. Oh, well, I'll be dipped. Isn't that your Aunt, Aunt Sarah? Sarah? Oh, oh I haven't seen you in like eight years. I love you, Dad. Hi, Mike. Hi, Dad. I love you, Dad. <laughs> hey, Mike. <laughs> Emily D, Katie H, Vern, Ariana, Madeline K, Mallory J, and Kristen F. Hey, guys. Thanks. Thanks. Everybody. Love you, bye. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>